Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, man. It's bright and early. I'm sorry for waking you up this early, but happy to have you here. Well, usually I'm up at five o'clock, so eight o'clock isn't bad, but I did sleep past the five by quite a bit this morning. So hopefully I'm uh, rolling on all eight cylinders here or six. <laughs> I've got a car that has five, so five will do it too. <laughs> a couple more sips of coffee you'll get there yeah um, i invited you on because you had mentioned a thing in our last episode that i didn't want to dive into because it was going to be kind of a deeper topic but it was about the mafia stuff um you had mentioned a few times about connections and what i, I mean coincidences with big air quotes on some things with some, some mob activity and some mafia related stuff so i wanted to understand a little bit more about it because i have my own interest i think it's a for historical purposes whether you believe anything relates to the kennedy assassination or not there are prominent names carlos marcello santos traficante um jimmy hoffa these names have a history and whether you want to believe in those connections results in the end thing with kennedy there's still things historically I feel like need to be understood. Uh, and I've been learning more about those figures and I'm sure you've done your own research to understand the mob a little bit more, but what's your perception of the mob? Well, I'll tell you, um, there was an anti-war group here in Minneapolis in the seventies and eighties. And I wasn't really a part of it, but I went to a demonstration, uh, at a corporation uh, called Honeywell. They still exist. They're huge electronics. You know, Honeywell thermostats is what people recognize. A lot of homes all over the country have that Honeywell thermostat. Maybe not so much anymore as, but you know, they stayed in the digital realm as much as anybody. So they're still there. Well, they also made uh, cluster bombs and various kinds of land landmines especially and there was a guy that spearheaded this every week demonstration in front of their corporate headquarters minneapolis and suburbs i mean they were kind of in a lot of places around the metro and uh so i show up and i want to touch base with him just because he's really become had really become prominent in terms of an anti-war person. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, I should say also in the 60s, because it was uh, the the movement was about trying to stop Honeywell from continuing to produce these landmines. <clears throat> and uh, I said to him, what do you know about organized crime in the Twin Cities? And I'll never forget, he said, who needs organized crime when you have corporate America? <laughs> and of course, he was a little biased towards indicting Honeywell because they were literally producing weapons to be used in Vietnam. But I never, I never forgot that. And so I've kept my antenna out to recognize not only white collar crime, but just corporate crime and their ability to, to do things without getting in hot water with, with the government or with anybody else. They just kind of, and so I, I, I kind of don't necessarily 
make a distinction between the mafia and white collar crime. I, I think two heads of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so fast forwarding to New Orleans, first time I was there, it was, uh, I believe, 86. And I I was there in both 86 and 88. But the first time was a teacher's convention. And I re I've been reading The Nation magazine religiously for 50 years. Well, in, let's say, May of 66, I read an, uh, a piece in The Nation about the My Lai Massacre. And it was by, by uh, a journalist named Ron Ridenauer, R-I-D-E-N-H-O-U-R. I think that's pretty accurate. He passed away, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. But he's the guy, as a medic in Vietnam, had blown the cover on the My Lai Massacre. So I thought, well, I'm going to New Orleans next month. I'm going to see if I can meet with him. Could you explain it a little bit, the My Lai Massacre, just for a younger generation who might not know? Yeah. Um, the massacre was the killing of, I believe, about 400 women and children in a village in South Vietnam called My Lai. And... Uh, <clears throat> This was under the radar. Nobody knew about it until Ron Ridenauer, as a medic in around My Lai that day, um, I believe the date was when it happened was 68, 69, someplace in there. <clears throat> but he got reports that day coming from soldiers who apparently had been at Mi Lai and experienced it. And he dug a little bit and found out exactly what had happened. Now, he was from Arizona. His congressman was Stuart Udall. And uh, he got a hold of Stuart Udall. Now, this is in the article, but when I meet with him in New Orleans for a couple of hours at a hotel on Canal Street, he fleshes out more about what what he knew and uh, so he tried to get Stuart Udall uh, in Congress I believe Udall was a senator to to run with an investigation and Udall did and it blew up in the news so I get to New Orleans and he meets me, like I said, at, at my hotel on Canal Street. And uh, we proceeded to talk about everything from the assassination to My Lai, the My Lai Massacre. And what he said about the My Lai Massacre was that <clears throat> he found out that it was standard operating procedure to destroy villages. And kill everybody. It wasn't just one My Lai massacre. It was standard operating procedure by the U.S. military and the South Vietnamese forces to destroy villages because the assumption was that the villages were uh, 
were bases of Viet Cong operation, laced with tunnels and so on. And, and this was just kept secret. And the, the Lieutenant Cayley was one that was called on the carpet by, well, he was prosecuted and, and went to jail. Uh, but he was pardoned, I believe, by Nixon pretty quickly after he went to jail. So this really rubbed people the wrong way, obviously. And, uh, you know, it, it, what's going on in Israel right now is listening to a, a professor from the university in, in Israel, part of something called the New Israel, Israel Philosophy, or History new history of Israel. And he went into documents from 1948 and discovered Milai type activities by the Israeli army. They destroyed 500 villages because every village, Palestinian village, was seen as a, uh, a base of operations for the, for the uh, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, I don't think even existed in 48. They came about because of the massacres that were done by the Israeli army. And so his contention, and, he, and he, he's a Jewish historian, he's Jewish, and he's indicting Netanyahu for the things they did in 48, resulting in what we're seeing in the last week. Anyway, there is that military sort of commonality. Um, whether it's Israel, Russia, the United States, it's a, what do they call that, scorched earth, earth policy or something? Yeah, but Japan did it too during uh, World War II. I was speaking to a historian uh, who happened to interview someone who actually dropped the bombs at Pearl Harbor. And uh, he he was mentioning to him that there was a plan change when they were capturing U.S. submarines. They just grabbed the crew, tied them up, and then sent them back. They didn't do anything else besides sink the ship. They would send troops back. Well, the order came to start killing the troops and the crew because they realized Americans can replace the ship pretty easily, but they can't replace crew members. That's a lot harder to do. And that order changed just because they were like, obviously, they keep coming back. So they were like, scorch it then. Destroy everything. Don't leave anybody alive. Don't take any prisoners. And that's when that new method started happening. But we, I mean, I think that's every government. Yeah, I mean... To one extent or another, some are obviously worse than Nazis were. Unit 731 was pretty bad, too. Yeah. So anyway, um, Ridenauer and I continue to talk. And, of course, I'm in my downtime being at the teachers convention. I'm wandering around downtown New Orleans to make contact with potential uh, witnesses to Oswald being in New Orleans. And, uh, but I, I said to Ridenauer, so tell me about, uh, the mafia in New Orleans. Now, I don't think he was a native, but he'd been there a number of years as a journalist. And, and, uh, he says, uh, well, he says, Marcelo, the, the Marcellos were so powerful that if you had a scam, that you thought you could run, whether it was by telephone, whether it was nowadays, you know, much more 
much bigger variety of ways you can run scams. He said, you could easily get to someone who is connected to the Marcello uh, world. And if they thought you, if you, if they thought the scam could work, they would finance it. And of course, you know, that implies that they would, they would need uh, some payback from the scam, obviously. But uh, that was that was '86 when I'm talking to him about that, and uh, it was just a real eye opener as far as how the mob could operate. And of course, New Orleans might have been an easier place for the mob to operate because it was corrupt forever. And uh, since then, I've been there, seems like about 10 times. And one time I spent four months there when, when I had this knee infection from a cortisone shot. So I wasn't very mobile then. But the previous nine trips, starting in 86 through the teens, um, my son would take me around to a lot of places that uh, I, I I thought would be useful in terms of getting a perspective on Oswald in New Orleans. So in 86, I'm, uh, and of course, everything about Oswald is tied to the New Orleans mob in terms of his relatives. You know, they, they, again, were, it was so easy to get in touch with Marcelo and his gang that uh, it's no wonder that Oswald's family was involved with Marcelo. And uh, so I, I'm standing in front of my hotel, and there's a bookstore across the canal. And uh, I had brought a book with me from Minneapolis that had pictures in it and it was it was about um oswald it was uh the name will come to me in a minute here but at any rate i remembered pictures from the book and i look across the street and i see this building that looks familiar there's an archway on the corner entrance to the the building and i think wait a minute i've seen that i run upstairs get the book bring it down match the photo in the book to what I'm looking at. And sure enough, it's the corner where Oswald was passing out literature when he got busted by the New Orleans uh, cops, passing out fair play for Cuba literature. And uh, when you look at the video of that, uh, that day that he was doing that, you can see the facade in the building. So you, you, you recognize it. So I go across to the bookstore and <laughs> crazy enough, here's a stack in the big display window in front of this book for a buck a piece. So I go in and buy a couple. And uh, I, I end up, maybe the next day, finding the, the parking ramp outside the Naval Intelligence, FBI, CIA, federal building headquarters and i walk in to this parking ramp and uh because it's identified in the book and the guy that owns the parking ramp is uh named adrian albu a-l-b-u and his son is there 
and I said, I see that this book is uh, has a story about your dad and his experience with uh, Oswald. He says, yeah, you know, we were, and we're standing in the office, and the office is such that his father had enough sense of history to keep the room from 63 to 86 exactly the way it was when Oswald would come next door where, where he was a, a coffee grinder, machine oiler. And, you know, a lot of uh, that's a pretty common uh, scenario that's described in a, by a lot of researchers. But the idea was that Oswald would come over and he'd sit down for the 15 minute break he had and he would look at the gun magazines that Adrian Alba Alba had on the uh, on the end table and the pop machine was there and he'd buy a Coke and and they'd uh, actually talk guns. And Alba was eventually called in front of the Warren Commission to testify. And I, when I got back to Minneapolis, I called him and had a con couple of conversations that I have recorded because you can record people from Minnesota. There's only four states you can do that without permission. Vegas is one of them. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that would be standard operating procedure for Vegas, I guess. Um, I've got a mob story from there, too, from an acquaintance that owned a big hotel. At any rate, um, Albu proceeds to describe one day, and this is an infamous incident, where Oswald leaves the parking ramp. And this guy owns the parking ramp, literally. It's, it's a two-floor parking ramp. But as he, he looks out the window as Oswald is walking back to the Riley Coffee Company right next door. And a chartreuse sort of colored Studebaker, which is no longer produced. I don't know what it became, if anything, after that. But it slowly drives by the front of the parking ramp and stops and he notices that Oswald goes over to the car and leans in to the open driver's window and an envelope is passed that Oswald sticks under his t-shirt and Adrian Albus tells me that <clears throat> I recognized the car it was one of the agencies across the street that kept their cars in my parking ramp so I knew the car <laughs> and so here's a, a prime example of a, a connection between Oswald and intelligence agencies. I forget exactly which one I'd have to listen to the tape to hear which, whether you said it was naval intelligence or CIA or FBI. I mean, CIA shouldn't have had an office there since they couldn't operate domestically, but who knows? So he says, when I was on the stand at the Warren Commission, they handed me the rifle. And uh, he said, I knew it was the same rifle that Oswald would have me try and get the sights straight. He says, it was such a piece of junk that when they handed it to me, <clears throat> he said the bolt was so sloppy. If you grabbed it by the bolt, 
it would just fall right out of the rifle. So you, you had to be careful. He says you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with that thing because the scope wouldn't sit straight on the mountings. He says, no matter what I did, I couldn't get it to sit straight. I shimmed it. I did this. I did that. Nothing worked. He couldn't have hit the broadside of a barn with that gun. Now, I probably told that story in a previous uh, discussion here. But again, it's um, it's part of what I understood about New Orleans. Um, it was like there were... It wasn't hard to find people that had experiences like that. I walked into a shoe store. I said, do you, do you, and the guy was old, do you know anything, remember anything about Oswald? Oh, yeah, he'd come in here and try on cowboy boots, you know. So there were many, many people that had experiences. Uh, <clears throat> do you believe all those people's experiences? There's even a guy who, like, has a whole restaurant where he says that one of his family members killed Kennedy or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that people embellished whatever it was they might have experienced or just totally made stuff up. But here was Adrian Alba, who the Warren Commission actually saw fit to, to interview. Now, who knows? He could have been making up part of his story. But, you know, I remember he said, have you ever shot or hunted squirrels? I said, well, once. He says, well, you try to take a shot at a squirrel and then reacquire it through the scope. It's very difficult. Now, maybe the limo wasn't moving as fast as a squirrel would through the trees, but it's still a matter of picking up that limo and Kennedy's head through the scope after you fired and missed. I also feel like you wouldn't use a mail-order rifle to do that, but... So anyway, <clears throat> uh, I don't know that Ridenauer was interested so much in the Kennedy assassination because he didn't say, here's somebody you can talk to or anything like that. He was, and I was as interested in finding out what he knew about the local mafia. But uh, uh, my son, was part of a band and one of the one of the people inherited some money not in the band but a friend of the band and bought a venue in mid-city they call it in new orleans and uh, sure enough the building was owned by marcello's nephew and so it's like they're they're Modus, their MO was to buy real estate right and left with laundered drug money, prostitution money, numbers rackets, you know, illegal gambling. And so they ended up owning so much of New Orleans that uh, <laughs> it was ridiculous. He lived in Metairie, Marcello lived in Metairie, which is an unincorporated city of probably well, 75 to 100,000 people on the edge of New Orleans but it remained un, unincorporated, still is. And I don't understand incorporation laws in terms of how a city avoids becoming unincorporated and why, but I'm, I have a hunch that Marcello had a lot to do with 
corrupting the city council to make sure that it was never incorporated or the the county council because they didn't have a city council not being incorporated i guess and uh so i poked poked around a bit um i went into this restaurant <clears throat> in metairie because i'd heard that this was a, a favorite restaurant it was an italian restaurant uh, the, that Marcelo liked to go to. So I, we're, we actually go to dinner and the place is packed. It must've been Friday night. So we got to wait. We stand in the lobby and every square inch of the walls is covered with a lot of famous people that have eaten there. And just a lot of people that maybe were friends of the guy that owned the restaurant, whatever. And uh, I said to the the manager, whoever was setting up getting people to their tables i said uh, so where's a picture of marcelo he said well there is none he said except that one picture down there and it was halfway hidden by a little table up against the wall he says that's his family but marcelo wasn't in the picture so nobody would know without somebody pointing it out that this was a bunch of marcelos and it wasn't any more prominent than any other picture in the uh in the restaurant so we get our table and we open up the menu and here are about five six dishes named after marcelo so his visibility <laughs> in a in a restaurant in new orleans was in the menu where everybody would see the name marcelo because it was scattered throughout the menu, various dishes, Marcello's spaghetti, this spaghetti, that no picture of him in the, in, or anybody else in the menu or on the cover, like you see in some restaurants, but that just struck me as uh, odd that in one way he'd stay under the radar by not allowing any pictures on the walls. And yet he allows his name in the menu. So who knows what that means about his uh, personality or whatever, but uh, I found out where he lived in Metairie, right next to the uh, a country club. And the story is that, uh, and I, I, I went there and I sat in my car and I looked at it. And it was a, you know, nice sized house. I wouldn't say I'm maybe million, a million bucks because of its location by a golf course. But apparently he had moved from there because he got, tired of the snootiness at the country club you know <laughs> i mean i guess he was human and he was working class and he couldn't he was illiterate and you can imagine what he had to put up with from people who didn't need his influence and i found that quite interesting I, it gave me a little extra faith in humanity to think even a mobster got turned off by people flaunting their wealth, right? <laughs> um, then my son had a friend whose father was a state trooper. And he was quite high in the uh, state, state police hierarchy. And my son tells me that uh, his friend described a picture on the wall at uh, something called Southport, which was a gambling hall controlled by Marcello. 
and it was right on the New Orleans border with Metairie, not too far from the levee that uh, was on the Mississippi, but they had a tunnel that ran into New Orleans. So because of their gambling prowess at places like Southport, if they got raided, they could simply head for New Orleans through this tunnel. And, you know, it wasn't a huge dance hall gambling emporium, but it was it was healthy in terms of having events, whether it be weddings or musician uh, concerts. And so I went there and uh, here on the wall was a picture of a raid taking place. It was a painting. I'd say, you know, it wasn't a mural covering a whole wall, but it was a painting about uh, five feet by eight feet, if that. And it showed the state police uh, maybe even cuffing a few of the people running the, the gambling tables and so on. And uh, so I, I found out more about the picture from my son and his friend. And what it amounted to is that this... Uh, this friend of my son said, my father would go in with the state police to stop the gambling, and uh, they confiscate all the money on the tables, and they'd give you know, some tickets or whatever. They didn't really apparently haul anybody off to jail, but then they'd take their cut, and most of the money would go back to Marcelo. So they had this facade of policing the gambling, Marcello's gambling operations, but not really. And so the state police had been corrupted by Marcello. So the guy was just, uh, you know, at what, four foot 11 or five foot two, I forget. <laughs> he, <laughs> he had to make up for his illiteracy and his short stature to, uh, by, uh, just really being a mean son of a bitch. Were you surprised at all the connections or did you look deeper into his life and just other mob figures to know what their presence was like? I mean, we we look at it like, uh, what is it? A government influencing media operation Mockingbird is like, oh, there's no way that could happen because, but it's like, it's a smart strategy. You have your media assets because of the fact that they try and report on an intelligence secret or anything to cover your ass. Plus it's propaganda. Well then look at the mafia owning they went into Hollywood. They did a lot. And a lot of it's not out of the kindness of their heart. Um, you know, they were getting a kickback from something. So if you look at their presence, and that's why I'm so interested in them, it's like, I mean, I don't I don't know why Jimmy Hoffa supported Nixon in his campaign. I don't know why certain mob figures were doing acts of kindness where they were spending money on either building up Las Vegas. Well, it was in their own financial interest to have something that they could have control that would bring in a source of money towards the end. I mean, a lot of their stuff, they weren't seeing it as slights towards them. They were more looking at it like, this is how we run the game. And this is how business works. But people would like, like it, to me, it's baffling the fact that like nobody really trusts the testimony of Santos Tropicante, Carlos Marcello, or any of these figures that gave testimony about the Kennedy stuff. Whether you, I don't believe they did anything. I don't believe they ordered a hit or anything, but I'm just surprised that we don't look at that more. They just kind of go, oh, they're slimy mob figures. I'm like, yeah, but. You have Jack Ruby that was seen at Parkland Hospital by a Seth Cantor. I do believe that. But then if you look what the Warren Commission accepted, they just used 
Karen Carlin and a couple of Jack Ruby's associates and say, no, actually, he was at the Carousel Club. Seth Cantor's a liar. I'm like, so you trust the slimy figures when it fits your point of view. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> again, the, 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 the line between organized crime is non-existent. I mean, when Honeywell in Minneapolis is producing landmines that kill children right and left 50 years later when they're still alive and get stepped on uh that's as bad as any uh, you know that's state terrorism as far as i'm concerned noam chomsky at mit really is able to flesh that that whole notion out that the culture becomes corrupted by the military industrial complex that become so influential and, and gets its way and has has the law look the other way so that the profits keep rolling in and the tax base stays healthy in a particular city. I mean, Marcelo in New Orleans probably wasn't helping the tax base so much, although you could argue that on Bourbon Street, he must have controlled a lot of activity there, made it possible for the average person to experience uh, things that are illegal in most cities, except New Orleans. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, Marcelo was running Dallas and uh, what they call the, uh, the area in Arkansas in the Ozarks, which was a gambling haven. Uh, it was like the Dixie Mafia, they called it, because his uh, ability to control that much territory made him one of the one of the families that had the most influence in the country. And <clears throat> so let me fast forward a little bit to what I experienced in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and its hundred suburbs. Minneapolis is a fairly small city. It has a footprint of 55 square miles, which is very small, as does St. Paul. But the metro is 60 miles across. There's 4 million people. A lot of stuff gets under the radar, as always has. And the mob took over St. Paul, the Irish mob in the 1920s during the heyday of uh, organized crime, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And the Jewish syndicate took over Minneapolis. Is that Mickey Cohen? Uh, well, no, he, he had connections, but Bugsy Siegel was in Minneapolis. And the godfather, there were two godfathers. One was Berman. They built the the big uh, uh, sky needle in Las Vegas. Yeah, the stratosphere. Well, the um, the other family was last name Blumenfeld. And the nickname, his nickname, Sidney Blumenfeld, was um, Kid Can, C-A-N-N. -N. Now, when Humphrey was a student at a private college in St. Paul in the 
30s, he was a den there was a something called the 1934 truckers strike. People were killed in the warehouse district. Jimmy Hoffa was sent as a 23-year-old to help orchestrate the Teamster involvement in the strike. And it's considered one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, Teamster labor strikes in America. It really jump-started the union movement. And what had happened was you, you had a an elite in the Twin Cities, especially Minneapolis, that um, controlled truckers' wages, and they were miserable. And these people were living in mansions on a thing called Lake Minnetonka, made pr famous by Prince and lots of Bob Dylan, et cetera. And I, I live just a few miles from it, and it's astounding. Million-dollar lake properties, the 125 miles of shoreline. I, I drive through it almost every day to get to my grandkids. And this was the power structure in Minneapolis that got away with murder. Um, not, not so much literal mur murder, but just being able to corrupt the metropolitan area. It's not even in the city of Minneapolis proper, but people that operate in downtown Minneapolis live around this lake with 100, I mean, it's just gorgeous. Beaches, fishing, forests, hills. Uh, <clears throat> and so people, yeah, Minnesota's cold, but people tend to stay around Lake Minnetonka because it's so gorgeous. Mississippi River, you know, is not far away. And uh, anyway, Kid Can and Mr. Berman, the two godfathers running the rackets in the Twin Cities, they had done, they had <clears throat> they come to find Humphrey as a student at McAllister who has the gift of gab. He could sell an Eskimo ice cubes, as they say. He never forgot a name. Uh, so in 1945, it's either 41 or 45, <clears throat> he, get, he becomes the youngest mayor in the history of the United States of a major city, 31 years old. Now, <clears throat> maybe that's not true, but it's part of his legend. <clears throat> Still got a little hangover from that cold ahead but humphrey comes from a little town out in the middle of south dakota somehow he ends up his father was a druggist out out there and ostensibly he gets a scholarship to this this hoity-toity private school in saint paul and uh he becomes known so at 31 he becomes mayor and I, I know people that knew him at the time, a federal judge who was his uh, right-hand man, um, just died. But I got to know him, and he he would always shy away if I started to ask Humphrey about his organized crime experience or connections. It's like I didn't even ask the question. He just changed the subject. Now, this was a federal judge who, get this, he told a story to our union meeting. There were a good 500 at least people in the room 
at a resort in northern Minnesota. And he says, you know, when I put Jimmy Hoffa away, he walked by the bench and spit in my face. Now, that's in the 60s, I believe. So Hoffa had been here as a 23-year-old orchestrating the Teamsters strike in 1934. And I never got a chance to ask federal judge Miles Lord, get that, last name L-O-R-D. <laughs> Funnier than hell. I mean, he could should have been a comedian when he gave speeches to our union, teachers union. And uh, so his, his experience with Hoffa tells me that Hoffa understood some things about corruption in Minneapolis that the Teamsters were having to fight to get a fair contract for the drivers, right? I mean, the governor would call in the National Guard, and there's a, a famous uh, film that PBS shows about the trucker strike where the, the National Guard is shooting people. There's still plaques down not too far from uh, Target Field where the Twins got their ass handed to them by Houston last week, or the Target Center where the Timberwolves play. And uh, people haven't forgotten, you, you at the light rail train stops, they have pictures embossed on the cornerstones of the platforms showing uh, showing the pitched battles in the warehouse district between the National Guard, the state police, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this image never went away. People still talk about it. Well, Humphrey, 1945, becomes mayor at 31 years old. And I asked this federal judge, Miles Lord, he did, he did at times talk a little bit around it, but if you specifically said Hubert Humphrey's connections, didn't want to talk about. Well, he said that Humphrey tells the Burmans that built the sky, the um, the stratosphere. You know, this town isn't big enough for you and uh, Kid Can. You got to get out of here. So that's when the Berman operation moved to Las Vegas. Bugsy Siegel was was in their uh, in their group, so to speak. And so when they when Bermans go to Vegas, they start out with Bugsy Siegel being involved with the Flamingo. And uh, but they stay there and they prosper and they end up building the stratosphere and they. They had a, a, a fur operation um, and fur coats and, they, and leather. They were a huge operation selling leather coats. Well, they had access to the Canadian fur market, et cetera. They had access to the cattle that uh, would be processed as, as uh, clothing. 
And in the 80s, they sold their 450 store chain for hundreds of millions. So they were legit when it came to that operation. But they would they would also use the largesse from that operation to uh, survive in Las Vegas. Now, I had a friend who owned the Imperial Palace in Vegas. It was at one point the largest hotel in the world, right across from Caesars. And I know him because I was a hockey player at North Dakota. We were both goalies. He was older than me, so I didn't meet him till later in his life. But in about 1952, he took his construction company from North Dakota and uh, moved it to Las Vegas. And a neighbor of mine growing up in North Dakota, in Grand Forks, next to the University of North Dakota, invested $250,000 with Mr. Engelstead, who passed away in about 2005. Um, and Engelstead called him one day in the, in the, in the 50s and said, Dick, do you want to cash in on your $250,000 investment? Yeah, I guess so. So he did. Found out later that Engelstead, who owned the Imperial Palace, was dealing with Howard Hughes for an abandoned airstrip on Las Vegas Boulevard and sold it to, to, to uh, Howard Hughes for three million bucks. And of course, in the 50s, that's like 20 million today. Well, my next door neighbor in Grand Forks, who was a lawyer, he uh, felt kind of cheated because if he had kept his 250,000, he would have had part of that 3 million from Howard Hughes. He tells a story about being in his office. I've been in his office in Vegas at the Imperial Palace, not when he was there, but my neighbor in Grand Forks said, Yeah, I'm there visiting him. And he's on the phone and he's threatening somebody up. You son of a bitch, you fucker, I'll kill you if you don't do this or that. And he had a pistol strapped to the neck to his desk. Now, he was Swedish. He was dealing with the likes of the Burmans from Minneapolis who had migrated to Vegas just like he did. And he would have... He had an 800-car collection that he would have on display on two or three floors of his parking ramp. He had Elvis's car. He had the Pope's car. He had any famous celebrities' uh, automobiles that you could imagine. And he'd, he'd rotate the display with his 800 vehicles. And I was with him the night that he sold it for $80 bucks. He had lost his voice to cancer. He was a heavy smoker. And another acquaintance of us both walked in to the Imperial Palace where he would hang out every night at 11 o'clock and buy rounds of drinks for people from North Dakota. And as they walk in, he says to me, we just sold Ralph's $80 million car collection. So he knew the end was coming as far as his throat cancer, and, and that was that. But he was having to deal with the syndicate in vegas which 
you know, if you like Engelstead did had parties where you dress up like Hitler and you have Hitler's automobile that you're standing in getting photographed, the Jewish mob isn't going to appreciate that. And so he was having to threaten his way through through Vegas in order to survive. They the the Las Vegas Gaming Commission fined him, I don't know, a couple million bucks for his anti-Semitism. And he was kind of like Marcelo. He didn't do what he just did what he wanted. He had a place in the Cayman Islands and uh he wanted to build a wall to keep the beach from eroding. And the Cayman Island government said, no, you can't do that. He did it anyway. So. I don't, I don't think they're just rude. I think it's just, they, they're going to do it anyway, but they're going to ask you for permission just out of courtesy. And they already know that they're going to do it anyway. So if, even if you say no, you're just going to show up and there's going to be a wall there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not their, first time that they've dealt with somebody that is that arrogant you know hey i don't think it's on the basis of if you give them a yes or no or not i think it's just the the looks of it like kind of like you have to ask for, for for permission for instance that's his territory you have to do ask him or let him know if you're going to do activity there because that's his territory it's a sign of respect um not necessarily fear or not necessarily like oh i know you're more powerful than me it's like no we can do what we want anyway but we're giving you the respect of asking you first yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Well, the reason I was that I bring up this Swede from northern Minnesota who ends up going to the University of North Dakota like I did and plays hockey uh, like I did 10 years apart, so we didn't know each other as hockey players, but um, is that I I thought that he might know something about the assassination because of the circles that he traveled in. But I could never get close to it. His his right-hand man was an Italian who had the beer, um, the beer franchise for Western North Dakota, which may not sound like much, but it made him a millionaire. And he was from um, Western Ontario, Sault Ste. Marie and those kinds of towns in Ontario, quite a ways from Toronto. But but a lot of Italians had migrated there as miners back in the 1890s, 1900. And, you know, to survive just like they did in Italy, they many times became gangsters. And so I thought, you know, maybe I can get close to Engelstead and see if he knows anything about mob involvement in the assassination. And, uh, I could never, it was obvious that the the Italian who owned the beer operation in Western North Dakota knew something, but he played dumb. But he knew his experience was that, that Engelstead at the Imperial Palace was so influential. I mean, the guy flew, two, flew his 727. He had two of them into Minot, North Dakota. Uh, and they he picked him up, picked up the Italian guy, owns a beer franchise, 
and they don't have clearance to fly to Russia, but they do. They go to Moscow. And the Italian dude who I was, I delivered his papers when I was a kid. So I knew him from a long time. And I think they were actually on a scouting trip looking at Russian hockey players. But they didn't have clearance to do it, he said. We just did it. He just did it because <laughs> he could buy off whoever he needed to to make that happen. So the guy was was uh, a loose cannon for sure. There's a story about um, Traficante from a guy I interviewed who works for the Mob Museum. Um, and he had interviewed Traficante's family and everything like that. And this girl that he interviewed that happened to get in with Traficante's family um, she was young at the time and Traficante senior happened to be older. And I, I don't know if this is the time it's, it had to be around the time uh, Sinatra was still a thing. You know, he's still alive because he said he, they went to a club together and she was sitting across this guy who she didn't know who his mob background or anything like that. And uh, Sinatra had came off the stage, came over to Traficante and kissed his ring on his hand. And she said at that moment, she knew that this guy was obviously not someone to joke around with if there's Sinatra kissing this man's hand. You know, it's like I, I was told that by the guy who interviewed her. And it, to me, it was just like, yeah, I guess we really are disconnected from the presence and the power of the mob. I mean, to the point where they influenced Hollywood, much like the government did. They influenced everything. And to me, it's just surprising because like people still like, I don't know, we're just disconnected. My generation is from the mob, even though there's gangs today, it's just different. Yeah. And part of it is they, they're human. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of their rationale for their corruption is to get enough money to be able to go legit. So they buy up legitimate companies and then they become invisible. But they may take the product down the drain, and it's not the same product that people are used to buying. But now they're making the mob is making more money off the product, product, and so they literally infiltrate the business uh, system in this country, and uh, you know they they disappear. They they become sort of invisible, and so when my friend at the anti-war uh, demonstrations against Honeywell, hell, you, you probably have the mob invested, investing their profits from the rackets in, in those kinds of operations, uh, you know, to make money off weapons. Um, there's a book, Contract on America. David Scheim, he's been on the show. Yeah. He's still around, huh? Back in the 90s, I, I would compare notes with him, and uh, it uh, was quite eye-opening because I think he, he really did a, a thorough job of trying to expose the mob's connections to, uh, to the business world, you know? Um, 
Well, you mentioned Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, leader of the Teamsters Union. They helped build. They used the Teamsters pension to build Las Vegas. The Flamingo is one of those businesses, but it was two hundred and seventy-two million dollars. I had to Google on my phone if there was a different Jimmy Hoffa. I was like, that's a rare name, but I'm looking at this guy who, if you look up his name, they're like, oh, he did great things for truckers and all these unions and things of this sort. But then you look up, he's like, well, he's a mobster. He's sitting there like this in a court hearing that he's being brought to. So I'm like, is this the same? It is the same guy. So to me, it's just like, there's two different personalities here and you start realizing, no, they're influenced in corporations, but I don't know. Maybe it's just the time that makes us forget. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, I think I mentioned again, the, the fact that organized crime is so ubiquitous when, whether it's Minneapolis or new Orleans, Hell, I ran for the legislature in Minnesota in 86 and 88, about the time I was talking to Ron Ridenauer in New Orleans. And I was in a small town of 800 people, 100 miles west of Minneapolis. I was teaching school, as was my wife. Somebody, somebody encourages me to run for office, so I get an endorsement from the Democratic Party. And now a couple of guys, a lawyer and a large farmer start to talk to me. They wouldn't talk to me before that. I was a teacher. I was a nobody. I was an outsider in this village of 800 people. And yet they were wheeling and dealing, as I find out, with organized crime in the Twin Cities, because just like Marcello's influence is so wide in New Orleans, Kid Can's influence in the Twin Cities is as significant. I mean, he's hanging out with Traficani, and the Florida mobsters, because they're investing in everything from trailer parks in Florida to condos, just land in general. And so the interface between uh, Traficani and who's the other one? Giancana? Uh, Marcelo? Uh, no, in Florida. Uh, um, Traficani and anyway. The, the linkage between what's going on in Florida with the huge real estate operations and growth is attracting money from the Twin Cities, from Detroit, from Chicago, everybody's that's uh, into the rackets at all has to have a place to dump their money. And so Florida is as good as any place because of the future potential. But so these guys are approaching me, and uh, we were at a rally one day on the Minnesota-South Dakota border, and here's this British dude trying to uh, say to farmers, you give me 5000 bucks and I'll save your farm, because it was during the farm crisis when farmers were suiciding because they were going to lose the family farm after 100 years. And this British dude shows up in a double-breasted baby blue suit with his fancy British accent, and he's trying to fleece these farmers of 5,000 bucks, which would now be about 20,000, to save their farm. And I say to these two dudes from the town that I'm teaching school in, the lawyer and the big farmer, I said, this guy sounds like mafia. He's talking about offshore money that he has access to. In the uh, Isle of Wight, I think was one of them, in the uh, English Channel area. And uh, 
And the response to me was, yeah, this is terrible. No, it was, what difference does it make? Who breaks your legs, the government or the mob? And then I knew who I, these guys wouldn't talk to me before. But as soon as I might win an election, which I lost by 900 votes, 11,000 to 10,000, that there, they would have been at my door uh, asking for favors because now I'm useful, even in a state legislature, to be corrupted and to provide a key vote in something that they were interested in that would further their business operations. I mean, they were... They were moving factories, two factories out of Minneapolis, where they where the company, Simon and Schuster, in one case, had to pay union wages. So what do they do? They move it to this town 100 miles out and proceed to pay non-union wages. People are driving 60 miles one way just for a half-assed job because the farm economy was in such rough shape. So again, my point is, the the distance between citizen organized crime and Marcelo type organized crime doesn't seem to really be that far far apart, you know. I mean, the mob, like David Scheim says, has corrupted the body politic of America. And I'll give you another example. Um there was a lieutenant governor here. Well, he's dead now. His name was Sandy Keith. And he uh, he was a lawyer for an insurance company in St. Paul that was run by two mobsters, a father and son from Chicago. And he decided to try and hijack the nomination for the Democratic Party in Minnesota for governor from the sitting governor. Uh, who who was not not doing that well because he was a heavy drinker while in office and so they thought he was a sitting duck let's let's take the nomination away so they were at a a convention up in uh, northern minnesota at a resort and they maneuvered to get the nomination well along comes august september of that year, 1968, I believe it was. And the party regulars decided they had more loyalty to Governor Rolvog, who was drinking himself into a grave. Uh, they still didn't want to hijack his nomination for the for the present convention in August of 68. And uh, so they take the nom nomination away from this Sandy Keith who, as he was trying to rid himself of contamination, he resigns as the lawyer for this insurance company in St. Paul. So he looks clean. So when I heard about this 20 years ago, I realized that, uh, that this probably had something to do with the kid can godfather operation that humphrey had to deal with and he kicks the berman stratosphere people out of minneapolis and and so kid can is basically running 
the show in Minneapolis, and it's only 55 square miles. It's fairly easy to run, you know. Most cities are 100, 200 square miles. But Minneapolis had an odd thing happen in 1913. They passed, the legislature passed a law to not allow Minneapolis to annex any surrounding territory. That's why there's 100 suburbs. And it's 60 miles across. So every city is always competing for an industrial base for their taxes, tax base to run their, their city governments. So it's an odd kind of environment for politicians to operate in. Um, and so anyway, the Sandy Keith becomes lieutenant governor in the 80s. And as lieutenant governor, he, you know, is pretty obscure, but he looks like a Hollywood movie star. So he he trades on that. So the long and short of it is I'm down in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic at a Lions convention. And I'm walking through this mall next door to the Mayo Clinic, and I see his name as a lawyer, and his office is in that space. And I don't know as much as I know now about him then, but I did know that um, he was a player. And I filed it now 10 years later uh, in the, let's say, in the late 90s. I'm walking through the same mall, and I look up, and here he is walking towards me. Now, by this time, like I say, 90s, but I'd run for office in 86 and 88. And we would run across each other at fundraisers. He wouldn't remember me, but obviously I'd remember him because it was pretty intimidating to be getting up on a stump, literally, and giving a stump speech, having to uh, follow people like Hubert Humphrey's son, Skip Humphrey, running for the Senate, and the Sandy Keith running for some office, Senate probably. And I said, Mr. Keith, as he approaches me, I said, you wouldn't remember me, but we used to run across each other and campaign fundraisers out in Southwest Minnesota, where I'd been teaching school, like I said. And uh, he's oh, he says, where are you from? I said, Chaska. You might recognize Chaska because the Ryder Cup was here and the PGA tournaments and the U.S. Open. Every few years, they have a big golf tournament. I'm not a golfer, but I still find it fascinating to see how they how the PGA operates. And um, he says, oh, I was just out that your way a couple days ago to check on. To check on development. Well, it's a, where I live is a fourth ring suburb. And fourth ring suburbs tend to be growing like crazy, especially after after uh, George Floyd's assassination. Minneapolis isn't that safe anymore. It's not Chicago, but people won't go there anymore. So the, there's a sort of white flight out to the fourth ring suburbs. And so the development is crazy. Now, when he said, I came out here to check on development, I knew when he said that, that he had been mobbed up in the 60s. 
when he tried to hijack the nomination for governor from the sitting governor. So the plot thickens when you realize, do you remember in 2011, the I-35 bridge collapse in Minneapolis? 13 people died. I had a couple of students go down on that bridge. They didn't die, but they were underwater. And it managed, they were 17-year-old seniors. They were in pretty good shape. They managed to survive. And, but at any rate, <laughs> talk about the, the interface between, between state and city government and organized crime. The lieutenant governor, who's still alive, she became, as lieutenant governor, also the state transportation commissioner. Never before in the history of Minnesota had anybody held both offices at the same time. State transportation commissioner and lieutenant governor. Her claim to fame was she beat Jesse Ventura in an arm wrestling match at a county fair. <laughs> she was beefy, let me tell you. Well, they were building a freeway from Minneapolis out to this suburb. And there were a couple of Sicilians. When I got here 33 years ago, soon after, a local freelance reporter did a story on these two Sicilian brothers. And it was on the front page, and it said, Sicilian brothers have too much power, according to local citizens. And I read it, and I thought, very interesting, especially because when this Freelance reporter asked these two Sicilians who their investors were. Now they're living in a suburb next door to where I live, where the Mall of America is, Bloomington, Minnesota. And uh, so the, the freelance reporter says, who are your investors? And they said, relatives in Sicily, investors in Switzerland, and Trizec. And I said, Trizek? Well, I knew Trizek from when I was a kid living 80 miles from the Canadian border. And if you went to a big city, you'd go to Winnipeg, which was uh, about two hours north of Grand Forks, North Dakota. And a lot of Canadians would come down. If they couldn't get into the University of Manitoba, they'd try to get into the University of North Dakota. So I knew a lot of Canadians even before I played hockey, when most of my teammates were Canadians. So it was like, we didn't say A like Canadians do, but sometimes we almost do. So we're part Canadian. <laughs> well, anyway, this lieutenant governor, who's also the transportation commissioner, she's been selling her farmland along the route of this freeway coming out to Chaska, which is okay. Farmers sell their land, you know, for freeways. That's not unusual. But then if you become lieutenant governor and state tra transportation commissioner, and the two Sicilians have been, in 1972, given 4,500 acres of your town that is still farmland for 3 million bucks. And one of them is living in Montreal and the other is living in Mexico City. And they get the offer for the 4,500 acres instead of somebody that's already living here. They weren't even citizens. But in 1950, 
the Italian government kicked 400,000, if not more, out of Italy and Canada in need of population opened their arms willingly to all these Sicilians, especially Sicilians. So like 100,000 went to Montreal, 200,000 to Toronto, 50,000 went to Winnipeg. So each of these towns has their Italian sections, just like on the East Coast, right? And that 4,500 acres is now worth a billion dollars at $100,000 a residential lot, right? You do the math and it's a billion. My theory is, even though I was endorsed by the Democratic Party to run for the state legislature, it became a slush fund for Democrats and Republicans. So Sandy Keith, the lieutenant governor, who was a mob lawyer, he tells me that he's out here to check on development. Well, he's got an investment in the land is, is what it looks like. The, the, the lieutenant governor, while Jesse Ventura was in office, no, it was it was after he was in office, but you know, instead of fixing the I-35 bridge, which fell because as they discovered later, they used gusset plates to connect the various parts of the bridge that were too thin. They were half as thick as they should have been. So now you put you you are gonna fix the bridge by laying new concrete. And you got all this sand and equipment on the bridge, and these gusset plates break. It cost 150 million bucks to have fixed those that bridge if they had done it in a timely manner. But the woman, Lieutenant Governor, Transportation Commissioner from Chaska, instead of spending the 150 million on the bridge, she spends it on the freeway coming to Chaska right with the off-ramps right into that 4,500 acres. And so that's why the Lieutenant Governor, Sandy Keith, was checking on development. And, you know, she... It's like insider trading, but a little bit more important because it actually affects people's lives. And so I dig a little deeper and I find out that these brothers, one just died five years ago, the other one's probably 90, 95, and they have children who are taking over. Um, you know, they, they got the 4,500 acres because, I mean, I'm going into the weeds on this, but it doesn't make sense unless I do. There was a new town development in, in the 60s. Reston, Virginia is a new town that has survived, but the government wanted to fund new towns that were pedestrian friendly and were a new way to develop the urban landscape. And so there was a 4,500 acre development here called Jonathan, named after a settler. And uh, so this is what it was about. That 4,500 acres became up for sale when the guy who got the feds to fund his new town died. And his family didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't have the time or the interest. 
So a bank in St. Paul that's known for uh, laundering mob money offers them the land for three billion bucks, which is now worth a billion. So, I mean, the insidiousness of the infiltration of the business community is off the charts. And so it's no wonder that Marcelo in New Orleans, if he's running Dallas and the gambling territory in uh, um, Arkansas, doesn't have Kid Can as an, as an associate in Minneapolis uh, because the strip joints in Minneapolis are notorious. They were on the same circuit as Jack Ruby's club in, in Dallas, the carousel. The same strippers would come through here. And so there was lots of circumstantial evidence to what I discovered over the years that Hubert Humphrey is a 31-year-old comes into the mayorship of Minneapolis and the place is being run by the mob. What is a 31-year-old going to do? He's going to have to play ball. So he wittingly or unwittingly becomes a part of this corruption that exists. The Democratic Party that endorsed me in 86 was not as corrupt as it was in the 40s when Jimmy Hoffa shows up as a 23-year-old, and he's wet behind the ears, but he, you know, gains a lot of experience dealing. Now, the, the problem is, with that scenario, is that the Communist Party in the Twin Cities, both, especially the Trotskyites, were running the, the strike. And Jimmy Hoffa has been known to be uh, conversant with socialist politics and philosophy you know he's i don't know how that translates into deciding to use the teamsters funds to invest in vegas but business probably it's uh, a business baby that's how it works yeah yeah and uh so anyway I, i'm going off on a lot of tangents here but i'm just trying to make it now you've made good connections i mean it makes me think a little bit more i think modern day capitalism what we associate that is just they're really good the mob strategy was very effective obviously in capitalizing on business and there was a reason for it back in the day and we called it mob tactics but there's not really a difference if you look at the capitalist system today i mean they do it through mergers and everything like that but in the end one person gets all the glory right right <clears throat> um i think i alluded in a previous talk to the fact that my my next door neighbor and his family. Um, in fact, he's named after. Do you know the name Buffalino from The Godfather in New York and the uh, Delaware River Valley on the Pennsylvania, Jersey, New York border? Well, that's where they hail from. But uh, <laughs> one day we're standing in the backyard here as he's telling me about fact that he's named after Russell Buffalino, the mobster, is that uh, um, he used to go to 
family reunions in, in eastern Pennsylvania when he was a kid and he'd see Russell Buffalo. Well, the movie The Irishman with Robert De Niro. Yeah. Playing who? Ed Shireen or? I don't know. They have Al Pacino in it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they're making their way across Pennsylvania to go to Detroit to hit Hoffa. And they're they're bitching the whole way about the fact their wives got to stop every half hour to have a smoke. And so there's a lot of time to kibitz, but Buffalino keeps keeps why they're driving to Detroit close to the, his vest. He's not because he figures De Niro is going to would back out if he knew he was being told to hit Hoffa. Well, my next door neighbor one day after he's retired a few years ago, he's in a Home Depot, not as a greeter, but just not full-time. And as I walk in, he says, hey, did you see the movie about my family? Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not something that you would think you'd be proud of, but if it becomes part of a movie, then yeah. Show it off. Show it off. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Negari, so I mean, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, again, there's an example. You know, this shit's right in your backyard, literally. And I'll tell you, when I I approached one of these Sicilians about, oh, I don't know, eight years ago, we were sitting at a fast food restaurant. And my wife was bringing the drinks back to the table, and I look out, and this. This little shopping area was just being developed. And there was a backhoe digging a what looked like a foundation, which turned out to be a Perkins restaurant. Well, I see the guy sitting in the full-size Mercedes. I'd seen his picture, and it's it's one of the Sicilians. And I said to my wife, wait a minute, I'm gonna go. This is so and so. So I go out to the car and I walk up. It's October, maybe it's November, it's pretty chilly. He's got the window rolled up. He's dressed up. And I make the motion to roll down the window. And he just looks up at me like, why? And I do it again. Third time he rolls down the window. I said, sir, you look, and I knew who he was. I'm just conning him. I said, you know, you look like you know what they're building right there. He says, well, it's going to be a restaurant. We don't, And I could barely understand him through the Sicilian brogue. And the face was classic godfather, you know, <laughs> the craggy look. And I said, you know, whoever built all the shopping areas in this area really did a nice job. I mean, there's a bell tower. There's peaks on the Target store, on the Home Depot. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then he puffs up, and he turns with his hand, and he says, "Yes, this is all ours." And he sweeps 360 degrees around where we were sitting. So all these buildings, I found out, were leased to everybody from Target to Home Depot. Well, what I didn't mention is that Trizec that I saw him say he used as investors was actually the 
the investment arm of Seagram's in Canada. So in the 30s and 40s, Chicago, Winnipeg was a main route for the Bronfmans, who are the richest family in Canada. And they bought Seagram's from a guy in Montreal in 1920s or so and proceeded to deal with, with Al Capone running booze back and forth from Saskatchewan, especially from Manitoba. And so Trizek was headquartered in Winnipeg. They've since morphed into Paramount and, you know, they've become much different than they were at the time. But you can surmise that as a result, the prohibition money that was flowing between Canadian uh, uh, distillers and Al Capone was being used to finance all kinds of entrees into legitimate business, buying up legitimate business. Because even the mobsters, like I said earlier, want to go straight at some point. It's too stressful worrying about getting wiped out, you know, because you cross somebody in the mob. And so I guess you could say the ones that survive are the ones that are able to kill better and eliminate their competition. But here we are in the middle of the continent and the Sicilians are kicked out of Italy and they show up in the middle of America, wheeling and dealing, making hay off real estate developments, in effect, laundering all the rackets money. And you gotta believe they're doing it every place. My experience can't be unique. You know, it's just that I never left here because of the cold weather, because I stayed close to my family. And the reason California is 35 million people or 40 million and Texas and Florida is because the center of the country is emptied out because of the weather. Minneapolis, St. Paul is 4 million. But if it wasn't for the weather, it'd be 6 million, 8 million. Everybody here. I mean, we have one of the biggest airports in the country because there's so much winter time flying south, whether it be to Texas or Mexico or the Caribbean, that uh, the, the business community is continually complaining about a labor shortage. And so, so many of the laborers here in the Twin Cities have come from. Texas, Mexico, and uh, that's how they deal with the labor shortage because of the outmigration of all the Norwegians, Swedes, and Germans that got tired of the cold weather and moved to Texas or California. My own relatives, in many cases, did that. But I ended up staying, and now I know the territory like I wouldn't have if I had left. I'd be in California talking about some mob operation there or Dallas. Maybe I would have been better off, but it certainly has been an experience. Now I'm 76. I have had five surgeries in the last uh, three years. And, you know, I'm still kicking, but I don't know if I'll make it to 80 or 85. Don't say that. God. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I look, maybe I look healthy, but I got a lot of shit going on. 
Um, I hope you'll be around for a while. You still got some more stories to tell. I knew you had a couple of stories in you about the mob. That's why I wanted to have you back on here to discuss some of them. Yeah. Well, when you, when you end up getting approached by them or their surrogates, if you're paying attention, it's not as hard to put two and two together, whether it's this lieutenant governor that said, oh, I was out to where you live two days ago to check on development, but you already know that the development is mobbed up. <laughs> it's not hard to put two and two together, but it gives you a big picture of how the how the society actually works. And, uh, you know, maybe have we been on? Yeah, we're, we're going to wrap it up here, Gary. I know you got some stuff going on. Um, but uh, where can people find your links? I know, is it the same site that you always have me put in the link description? Pretty much. I, I have a blog that I don't really uh, do much with, but there's some uh, document or some interviews that have been transcribed there, whether it be Dennis David, who was at uh, the hospital with JFK, arriving for the autopsy. Um, there's a few others that have been transcribed that, you know, I just figure there's stuff there that's worth looking at without me continually adding more. But I do on occasion. And uh, I mean, if I think I've said before, if, if one Google Severson Oswald or Oswald Severson, enough sites will come up that go to the uh, various things that I've that I've written, whether it be on the education forum or other places. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff that deals with uh, the fact, the fact, seeming fact that Oswald showed up in North Dakota in 1954 and 1956. So I have interviews with people who had that experience transcribed and that's a whole can of worms that I probably talked about in previous talks. So the easiest way is just Severson Oswald, Oswald Severson and stuff comes up. I'll make sure I link that in the description, Gary. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.